A day of defiance in Hong Kong as thousands surrounded the city's legislature. Lawmakers were scheduled to continue debate on the government's proposed extradition bill that could open the door for fugitives to be transferred to mainland China. Tear gas and clouds of smoke billowed from the heart of Paris as thousands took to the streets in anti-government protests that at times turned violent. Now, this was the scene just a few hours ago along the Champs-Élysées. You can see it there as protesters set up barricades and set them on fire while police responded with tear gas and water cannon. Officials say 35 people have been arrested in protests like this one from right around the Hello and welcome to season 7 of the Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based in the University of Virginia, and each week we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Emma Ross, and today we are discussing the protests in Hong Kong and in France. Today I'm sitting down with Nicholas Mortensen, a fourth-year global security and justice major. So I began researching this episode trying to give a more comprehensive history of the Yellow Vest protests as well as the Hong Kong protests, but it became very clear to me that anyone who can claim to know everything um, is either really overselling their knowledge or is lying to you. Just the sheer scale of different perspectives, different events, different videos, and different players, it was coming very clear to me very quickly that this was going to turn into a master's or PhD thesis. So instead, just for this episode, I want to key on on two key moments in both these protests. For the Hong Kong protests, that's June 12th, 2019, and for the Yellow Vest movement, that is November 24th, 2018. And we'll key on those more. So let's begin with the Hong Kong protests. Could you zoom in on your chosen event? Yeah, so just to get some general context on the Hong Kong protests, they've been in the news massively over the past couple of months, particularly during the summer, but it's always good just to give some more basic introductions. Hong Kong protests were a loosely connected movement of citizens who were all primarily opposed to a bill proposed in the Hong Kong legislature that would have allowed Hong Kong citizens to be extradited to the Chinese mainland. Since 1997, when Hong Kong was turned over from British colonial rule over to the Chinese, there's been this governing principle called one country, two systems. And the entire idea is that the Hong Kong administrative region, while being under Chinese control still maintained its own administrative justice and bureaucratic systems. The concern with this bill was that it would allow the mainland Chinese government to expand its legal reach well into Hong Kong, threatening dissidents, protesters, activists, and generally just impinging on the autonomy of Hong Kong and more or less eating away at at the concept of one country, two systems. 
The first major protest against this bill was the actual date varies. Some people argue it was in April, but for our purposes, it was on June 9th, 2019. There was a very large demonstration that was organized by the Civil Human Rights Front. That's a coalition of about 50 civil society organizations in Hong Kong. And the interesting thing is that there was no real set leadership. There are some spokespeople, but none of them have any delusions of grandeur. And essentially, even the people who are fashioned as the leaders of the movement by the media never, ever claim to be leaders of the movement itself. The main episode within all this we're looking at is June 12th. This was three days after the initial protest. And this is when tens of thousands of protesters showed up to the Hong Kong Legislative Building to oppose the second reading of this bill. In the process it was in, it had to receive a second reading before they could vote on it further. And protesters had to show up to oppose that second reading. They showed up around 7 a.m., And there were so many of them that legislators and their staff couldn't actually enter the building. So as a matter of practicality, the second reading was delayed. Some protesters were satisfied by this, but there was a core, according to some academics, I'm working off of Martin Purbeck's report on this, that states a couple hundred of violent protesters were dissatisfied by this and decided to storm legislative building. Over several hours, they began pushing police lines, pushing them back further and further into the legislative compound. And by the afternoon, they had actually were inside of the compound. Police at that point decided that it was time to remove not only the violent protesters, but the entire crowd using tear gas, rubber bullets, pepper spray, as well as liberal application of blunt force to remove the protesters from the legislative building. So essentially, you then have the police turning on a crowd of thousands and thousands of people. This was a really important moment. This was really the first time in the movement that mass violence, both from protesters as well as police, was seen. And to many, this is one of the sort of establishing kind of turning points or biggest moments of the Hong Kong protests. Yeah, that was a really interesting and kind of full description of the vast complexity of everything that's been happening in Hong Kong. Now, in this episode today, we're bringing a second case study to our listeners. We're going to be talking about the Yellow Vest protests in France. Do you mind explaining the generalities of those protests? And generalities is the main point. Just for the sake of brevity, there are going to be a lot of smaller dynamics are cut into, um, and viewers should be aware that we're really, really truncating the descriptions here. But this is really the bare minimum of what you need to know to have an informed opinion on this. But for the Yellow Vest protests, it was a very loose, and I emphasize loose, movement of citizen protesters and demonstrators who were initially in France, who were initially opposed to rises in diesel taxes that were announced by French President Emmanuel Macron. At this point in time, France, and still now, France has been pursuing a number of very aggressive environmental protection policies And to pay for many of those, they were announcing a hike in the diesel tax, making gas even more expensive, even though gas is incredibly expensive in France as it is. Essentially, like Hong Kong, this movement was very, very disparate and lacked any sort of real universally recognized leadership. Academics cite surveys that show the majority of the demonstrators were from the rural outer circle of France, which makes sense. If your job involves a lot of driving, you're paying more gas, and the taxes go up, that cuts directly into your livelihood. And the only real unifying principle here was a distrust of the establishment. The protests themselves, demonstrations, began on November 17th, 2018. Again, there's some disagreements as kind of the foundational event of the entire protest movement. But for our purposes, November 17th, 2018 was the sort of first starting flashpoint of the LFS protests. 
around 290,000 protesters began blocking roads and roundabouts all over the country, wearing yellow reflective vests that French law requires all motorists to have in their cars. So essentially, there were these demonstrations against gas taxes, they were blocking roads all over the country, and at least for the first day, save for some regions and towns, there were were generally peaceful protests. Flash forward to next weekend, which is on November 24th, 2018. For reference, all of these uh, protests occurred on Saturdays with the expectation that all the protesters had jobs and thus, you know, could only protest on the weekends. And... November 24th is when things get violent. This is when there are riots in Paris. There are a lot of very, very dramatic pictures of cars being overturned and burned, storefronts being smashed up, as well as police firing tear gas, flashbangs, and doing everything they can to clear out the crowds within Paris. Some newscasts called it Battlefield Paris. There were a lot of discussions of the violence, both from protesters and police. The first speech I want to look at is... Carrie Lam, who is the leader of Hong Kong's speech, and this was delivered in June 2015 in English. My relevant colleagues and I have made our best efforts, but I have to admit that our explanation and communication work has not been sufficient or effective. Although many people agreed with our two original proposals, there are still polarized opinions on the bill. There are supporting views and opposing ones. And their stances are very often polarized. Furthermore, many members of the public still have concerns and doubts about the bill. Some find it difficult to understand why the urgency and are unhappy with the process of the amendments. We have made many attempts to narrow differences and eliminate doubts. As a responsible government, we have to maintain law and order on the one hand and evaluate the situation for the greatest interest of Hong Kong, including restoring calmness in society as soon as possible and avoiding any more injuries to law enforcement officers and citizens. I'm grateful for the views of many pro-establishment legislators and leaders of various community sectors conveyed to me over the last few days, either openly or in private that we should pause and think instead of resuming the second reading debate on the bill at the Legislative Council as scheduled. This would prevent dealing a further blow to society. After our repeated internal deliberations over the last two days, I now announce that the government has decided to suspend the legislative amendment exercise, restart our communication with all sectors of society, do more explanation work, and listen to different views of society. I want to stress that the government is adopting an open mind to heed comprehensively different views in society towards the bill. The Secretary for Security will send a letter to the Legislative Council President to withdraw the notice of resumption of a second reading debate on the bill. In other words, the Council will halt its work in relation to the bill until our work in communication, explanation, and listening to opinions is completed. We have no intention to set a deadline for this work and promise to report to and consult members of the Legislative Council panel on security before we decide on the next step forward. And second, let's look at French President Emmanuel Macron's speech that was delivered on November 27th of 2018. 
This movement has given rise to major demonstrations and also unacceptable violence. I have understanding for these fellow citizens, but I will not give anything to those who want destruction and disorder, because the Republic is both public order and the free expression of opinions. But for the protesters who demanded the government revoke its fuel tax, Emmanuel Macron's response is unlikely to appease their anger. Walking a delicate line between showing empathy with the demonstrators and sticking to his government's energy strategy, the French president refused to renounce plans to accelerate the transition to clean energy. We must therefore hear people's anger and alarm, but we must not do so by renouncing our responsibilities for today and tomorrow, because there is also an environmental alarm. I would go further to say, it is the social and territorial inequalities that many of our fellow citizens are rightly denouncing today that are often coupled with environmental inequality. Listening to both of these speeches, they're actually somewhat similar. They both recognize that the movements exist and that they're problems and that they're issues that the protesters are rallying against, making some promises as well, but they're distinctly non-committal. As in, they say, we will assess solutions. We will we hear your you, we hear your concerns. We will be moving forward. We'll find a way forward. Case of Macron, who's actually fairly recalcitrant, saying that at this point in time, the diesel tax is not going away. There'll be time for discussions. There'll be time for debates. However, at this point in time, the main pitch is not going away. Likewise, Carrie Lamb is saying that the bill would be suspended. They would find a way forward to address the problems. But granted, this is not what the protesters wanted, which was a complete withdrawal and more or less the destruction of the bill um, as a legislative proposal. But it sounds like Carrie Lamb is kind of conceding a little bit more than Macron by your description. It depends, just because, yes, she is conceding slightly more than Macron did, because Macron was still keeping the central point of his policy. But also, there's a lot of legalese, politicians, um, more or less non-committal. We will be looking to find a solution in the future, which, to me, is not as much of a concession as it is sort of a pandering statement at that. But in either case, both of these speeches in content, in tone, in timber, to me, are somewhat similar. And the outcome was the same for both of these, which is violent protests continued for several weeks in both cases. Because the citizens would also see kind of, kind of see through the politicians speak and they would feel the same as you, that, oh, we're not actually getting anything out of this. This is just a politician trying to control a situation. I'd also imagine I'd be angrier if after getting my head beaten in by police, this is, this is a response I get. For a few hours on Saturday, the Paris Opera District and the Arc de Triomphe were in the hands of yellow vest protesters as the anti-fuel price rise demonstrations again boiled over into violence. 287 arrests were made as the interior minister condemned professionals of disorder for orchestrating the violence. Some opposition politicians accused the government of allowing things to degenerate in order to discredit the movement. 95 people have been injured. But the vast majority of protesters I spoke to say they do not want this to become the symbol of their fight. They are out in the streets to send a strong but peaceful message to the French president, a message that they can no longer live with this disconnect between the people and the power.
Another massive street protest, this in northern Hong Kong. Thousands upon thousands turned out to continue a weekend of demonstrations against the government here. What started as a protest against an extradition treaty with China has morphed into something far more serious, an actual questioning of what Hong Kong actually is. These people are peaceful, but not everyone is. A breakaway group, the so-called Black Shirts, attacked a police station away from the main demo. Over the next several weeks, in the timelines of both of these demonstrations and protests, you see return, you see several, several gatherings that are peaceful, but others that are also violent. Uh, it depends city to city, day to day, region to region, or in Hong Kong, district to district. And the thing is that since these demonstrations lacked any sort of universally accepted leadership, you were getting a very wide number of people with very different beliefs vis-a-vis -vis the use of violence and protests politics, both far left and far right, and other issues as well. And the governments in both cases, both in Hong Kong and in France, tried to seize upon these extremist elements and chalk them up to be the face of the protest to discourage more moderate centrist people who are a part of the protests. The problem is that, again, the videos can tell completely different stories based off who you're looking at, who you're talking to, and what's going on. So... The main statement we can make factually here are the concessions that were actually granted after several weeks or months of these protests going on, just because uh, with everything else, it really depended on where you were, who you were talking to, and when it was. And in the case of Hong Kong, the concessions as we have them right now, and this issue is by no means settled, but as we have them right now, the extradition bill in Hong Kong has been formally withdrawn, so it has been formally killed there is no, it's my understanding, any administrative bureaucratic way for them to sneak this back in unless they more or less start from scratch again. There's also been progress in addressing the police response uh, throughout the entirety of the, uh, of the protests. However, it doesn't really go quite as far as protesters wanted because they wanted the full release of all protesters who were arrested during all the demonstrations, all the riots, everything else. In the case of France, the concessions granted were a little bit leaner. So yes, the diesel tax was formally withdrawn for now. There's also a minimum wage increase by 100 euros per month, as well as some fairly small reforms to tax codes. The lowest income classes were given some tax relief, but ultimately a lot of the other demands protesters had, like a reinstatement of a wealth tax, fundamental institutional reform within France a ability to talk about the sort of fiscal, environmental, economic issues of the day, the Yellow Vest haven't actually been able to secure. Would you be able to speak to how successful the protesters feel after the concessions? In both cases, it really depends. And I'm not really comfortable making that statement just because, again, there's no centralized sort of spokespeople for either of these protests. I would imagine that the Hong Kong protesters have more to be proud of because the central premise of the entire movement was the full withdrawal and more or less ending of this proposed bill. However, at the same time, a lot of the other demands that they had regarding sort of addressing police violence, um, as well as institutional reform, 
No, but for the Hong Kong protesters, they haven't gotten all their demands, but the central demand that they had, which was the withdrawal of that bill, they actually did accomplish. Yellow vests, that is the really confusing and difficult question, just because to some people, the movement was a success simply because it shattered this illusion of Emmanuel Macron as this uncontested, wildly popular president in France. If you know anything about French history, they're never wildly popular. But at the same time, the actual demands that they had, as varied and non-unified as they were, the main thing they got was a couple of breadcrumb taxation reforms and the withdrawal of the diesel tax, which could be brought up at a later point in time. They haven't really gotten anything sort of with any significant staying power or any significant shakeups in the system that they wanted. And a point that you're continually bringing up that's kind of challenging assumptions is the fact that both of these movements aren't really, you know, around a single individual, unified around any single thing. And so that way, um, different people can take up the cause. But the question of what is considered a core essential piece of these movements and who is just kind of using the movement as a guise to further some other agenda. And that's the problem, just because... Both these movements didn't have a central leadership, but there are a couple of different dynamics between the two that really set the Hong Kong protests and the Yellow Vest apart. The main one to me that jumps out, and again, it's always very dangerous making generalizations, but this seems to be one of the less controversial points when talking about the Hong Kong protests, which is solidarity. On From everything that I've been able to read from journalists, academics, as well as autobiographies from protesters, agreed that solidarity was an incredibly important principle, as in this movement could not be divided. So, yes, there were different gradations of involvement and action. There were people who would be running water and supplies to various barricades manned by protesters. There were also other protesters who would show up for peaceful movements during the middle of the day. All of these people had different degrees of involvement, different levels of comfort with violence, direct action, and everything else. And obviously, since there were so many levels of division, they didn't all agree with each other. However, the main principle is that they would not publicly condemn each other. If there was some form of action that a protester was not comfortable with, they just didn't show up. Or they just would try their best not to be there. The people who were comfortable with that would go and do it. So there was that element of solidarity, which is even though you might not agree with their methods, you're not going to go out there and publicly split the movement over it. Yellow vests, different story. Just because, again, there was no central leadership, but more more so than that, there was no central ownership. There was an agreement that the diesel tax was an element that a lot of people would like to have seen removed. But beyond that, we're talking about... Far left demands, you're talking about far right demands, you're talking about far left groups more or less pushing out far right groups because they're better organized, and various attempts to turn the Yellow Vest movement into a political engine, and all of those failed. Candidate lists that were endorsed by the Yellow Vests were either not you know, unanimously endorsed by the Yellow Vests or failed to yield any sort of political success. And just generally speaking, there was no sense or there was less of a sense of solidarity among protesters, which meant it was easier for the government to seize control of the narrative, or at the very least, easier for someone to assume that the Yellow Vest protest was just a whole bunch of hooligans, far left or far right, running around and burning stuff. Just because that sense of ownership, that sense of solidarity was not there, I feel safe saying, to the same extent as the Hong Kong protesters. 
of course, it's, again, going to vary very massively from person to person. This is a kind of wider-reaching principle statement. But from every indication that we have, the demand that the extradition bill be removed was, one, a much more powerful demand and a much more unifying demand for the Hong Kong protesters, which allowed that solidarity to actually take root. But on the other hand, for the yellow vests, you had a diesel tax, which was what got everyone in the same room or the same roundabout. But from there, things got really rough really quickly, just because you could not agree on who the movement belonged to. So kind of moving back, after we've gotten a better sense of these movements from the citizens' point of view, what they're unified around, what they weren't unified around, going back, did you see the governments kind of taking advantage of the unity or disunity of these movements? Based off the speeches that we heard, the starting point was relatively similar. And in both the timelines, the governments had to give more and more concessions. Like by December, Macron had to say, "Okay, you know, diesel tax is going away. And Carrie Lam, as time went on, had to increasingly step away and kind of pigeonhole the extradition bill before eventually killing it. So there was sort of backsliding on their initially stated principles and their initially stated, like, this is just how things are going to be statements. However, both those initial speeches tried to do the same thing, and they would try to do the same thing in later speeches, which is work to acknowledge that the protests were happening, but they would try and focus much more on the violence and the rioting, on the hope that they could appeal to both the government of Hong Kong and the government of France, would try to focus much more on the violence and the extremism being perpetrated by some of the demonstrators in an attempt to split the movement, more or less an attempt to get moderates, centrists, or people who were not as comfortable with violence or political extremism to stay home. And at least in the case of France, that seemed to have been more successful just because by virtue of the discussion that we're having right now, in virtue of discussions that many op-eds, journalists, other people are having, you just, it is a fact of life that, again, there were extreme elements on both sides at the LVS movement. When you try to do the same for Hong Kong, pointing out points, you know, uncomfortable truths that we have to acknowledge. Like, there were times where the Hong Kong protesters beat people senseless on suspicion that they were playing close police officers who were infiltrating the movement. There were other acts of violence, arson, throwing bricks at police officers, other violent acts that were perpetrated as well that there's evidence of that were carried out. But it seems like, at least from everything that I've seen in discussion we're having right now, and the kind of mainstream consensus is that that violence was bad, it was regrettable, but it seems that it was forgivable, at least in the West. So while both governments had attempted to do something similar, which is point out that there were extremists, often violent extremists, involved in these movements, or if not violent extremists, people with a predilection to commit violence, it hurt the Yellow Vest more than it seemed to hurt the Hong Kong protesters. Yeah, and then there's also the question we were talking about yesterday, which was, you know, if I were to do a protest, which aspects of organizing my movement would be most successful? To me, that question opens up, like, what are the most important principles to hold with any sort of demonstration at this point? And that's a harder question to address just because a lot of the more major protests over the past several years have been leaderless, or at least they lack a central nerve system or a centralized command and control that protests of old might have had. But For those protests to be effective, they usually had two things going for them. The first thing is that they had a clear, universally held, and politically pointed demand. So in the case of Hong Kong, that was the withdrawal of the extradition bill. The second thing is that there was a fairly robust sense of solidarity 
at least to the extent that if there were other protesters doing something that you found unfashionable or you had issues with, you would not be publicly condemning them. And this is where things get very, very dangerous, and this should not be taken as endorsement of violence or against property, against police, against other people, against opposition. But the simple fact of the matter is that many of the protesters in Hong Kong agree that this, their solidarity, the solidarity was one of the most important things to uphold and maintain. If you have both of those things, you have a goal to work towards, which is important, but you also seem to be much more resistant to getting torn apart or you know, compartmentalized or sort of divided into pieces. Because if you have these two principles, not only do you have a more powerful thrust, you have a point to exist, you have a goal that people can identify and clearly work towards and the other side can clearly respond to, but also it's harder for that, for your own movement to be divided, to be sectionalized in various factions, to kind of fall into an internal us versus them mentality, which when you're dealing with a movement where just getting enough bodies out on the streets is a very important component of it, is very, very dangerous if that is allowed to happen. If you start splitting into factions, the movement starts sputtering, it slows down, it becomes less efficient, it becomes harder to find a unified message. And at that point, if that continues on long enough, you no longer really have a movement. You have a lot of people who might be loosely unified by some principle or demand, but it's easier for the average person to just shrug their shoulders and say, I might agree with what they're saying in principle, but really what about these guys? Or what about those people? Or what about that group? And the important thing really seems to be to have some sort of unified ages, some sort of body that has the same principles and is willing to stay together in some way should want to pursue it. And that's our episode for this week. As always, thank you for listening to the Global Inquirer and thank you to Nicholas Mortensen for bringing us this week's story. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to join us next week and consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook.